This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matthew Miller, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be speaking to Elliot Rabin about his new book, The Biblical Hero, Portraits of Nobility and Fallibility, published by Jewish Publication Society in 2020. Approaching the Bible in an original way, comparing biblical heroes to heroes in world literature, Elliot Rabin addresses a core biblical question. What is the Bible telling us about what it means to be a hero? Focusing on the lives of six major biblical characters, Moses, Samson, David, Esther, Abraham, and Jacob, Rabin examines their resemblance to hero types found in, and perhaps drawn from, other literatures, and analyzes why the Bible depicts its heroes less gloriously than do the texts of other cultures. Elliot, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you, Matt. Elliot, I wonder if you could tell us um, a bit about yourself. Absolutely. So um, my day job is at an organization called Prisma Center for Jewish Day Schools. We're an organization that supports Jewish schools throughout uh, North America in particular, some overseas as well. And we look to help schools however they are looking to to help and uh, network them. And it's really a pleasure and an honor to work with, with these schools to help them help uh, hundreds of thousands of, of students uh, develop Jewish base of knowledge and Jewish identity. Um, in terms of my academic background, I have a PhD in comparative literature, which really comes through in my book. Uh, and I studied Jewish studies and Hebrew literature within the framework of comparative literature. So that's kind of the way I, I see the world. And how did you come to write this book? That's a great question. Well, there are two answers. <laughs> the first answer is that somebody asked me to give, give a talk about heroes in the Bible after I had written uh, my first book, which was a literary introduction to the Bible, looking at the Bible through its various genres. How does the Bible tell a story? How does the Bible approach law, wisdom, literature, etc. And uh, a colleague of mine at the time asked me to give a talk to people about, you know, trying to come up with a, with a new perspective. And she asked me to talk about heroes. And I agreed because I thought it was intriguing. And then once I started thinking about it, I thought, wow, this is really actually a, quite a complicated subject and worth diving into. So that kind of spurred my, my interest and researches. The, the longer story is that it's a subject that has always been kind of problematic and intriguing and difficult, and I wanted to be able to find an answer. It, it, it was a subject that came up, I would say, uh, at Shabbat tables, you know, because I, I, I'm sure, like many people uh, who, who are listening, I like to talk about the Parsha at a Shabbat table. And I would find myself speaking about um, different characters in the Bible. And often my, uh, my father or my father-in-law uh, would, especially when we got to characters like Jacob, which would 
become, you know, would provoke me and say, you know, how could you, how could you accept that Jacob is, you know, a patriarch, a, a, a somebody who's worthy of being emulated? Uh, why is he? Uh, why is he? What's great about him? And you know, it's not an easy an- question to answer. So I, I wanted to kind of take a step back and look at how the Bible, you know, um, portrays characters in a larger sense, what makes them heroic? Does this term hero really apply to to the Bible? And also, I would say that the way that we discuss characters and the text in Jewish tradition doesn't always help. That was kind of my conclusion because we like to zoom in there's a movie called Powers of Ten uh, that, I, that I often talk about in relation to this book. It was produced, it, it was came out in like the early 70s, and it was produced by the Ames Brothers, E-A-M-E-S. The Ames Brothers were famous for, for making furniture, but they also made, a, made some wonderful movies. And this, this movie, Power of Ten, starts with um, a couple on a beach having a picnic. And then it goes backwards, as it were, goes up and looks at them from a power of 10. So uh, what it looks like when they're 100 feet, from a, from a height of 100 feet, from a height of 1,000 feet, et cetera, to the edge of the universe. And then it narrows in, goes back to the couple, and then looks at them 10 times magnified, 100 times magnified, until you're looking at just one uh, molecule of them. And this is, I think, a wonderful metaphor for the way that Jewish interpretation looks at the Torah, approaches the study of the Torah. It's often a matter of looking really up close, looking at one word and what makes that one word so important or one pasuk. But... uh, it's much rarer in a Jewish tradition to uh, to take a step back and look at a wider context. So that's what I was trying to do in this book. That's great background. And so I want to pick up on something you just mentioned, that there's a question whether or not there actually is a notion of the hero within the Bible. Is there is there a notion of a, Hebrew, of, of, of a hero within the Bible? <laughs> um, great question. So... <laughs> so um, I, I would say yes and no. Again, the, the answer to most questions, uh, Jewish questions, is yes and no, and certainly uh, this one as well. So the term hero is related to, it's thought to be related to the Greek goddess Hera uh, and means something like guardian. And, and you can see from that connection that the Greek notion of hero is uh, divine, that it's a a character who is, in some sense, divine. And so that already is a red flag for the Bible, because in the biblical world, in the biblical perspective, uh, there is only one God, and people cannot, cannot become part God. And so if a hero is, by definition, in the ancient world, part God, that means that the Bible doesn't have heroes, right? And 
you can see that in the fact that there's not really a term for hero in biblical Hebrew. There's a term gibor, which in later, more recent Hebrew has become the term for hero. But in the Bible, that term is reserved simply uh, for people who are strong. A strong a strong man, strong person, a warrior can be a gibor. Uh, and it says explicitly in... Uh, in, in the Proverbs that somebody who conquers their own inclination, inclination to do evil, to, uh, to control themselves is stronger than a gibor. So there's already within biblical context um, a questioning of whether the gibor is actually uh, heroic and uh, kind of demotion of physical strength as a sign of heroism. Um, and yet, and the, on the other hand, right, we read the Bible for models for our lives, and we look at these characters and wonder what can we learn from them, and how can we emulate them, or what about them is worthy of emulation, right? So that is already, the way we read the Bible is uh, we're reading it for heroes, that's the way we we people have always you know looked at heroes as what can we how can we emulate ourselves what what about them um, can inform our lives so it's it's not an easy question to answer that you know uh, the Bible kind of um, demotes the or is suspicious of the ancient world's view of heroes. And at the same time, the Bible puts forward characters who are, we are supposed to uh, admire and emulate in some fashion. So if we think about that discussion that you're having at the Shabbat table about these characters and their fallibility, and even if we go to your title of the book, which is The Biblical Hero, Portraits of Nobility and Fallibility. So how exactly does fallibility relate to heroism? Does one become a hero or is a hero because of their fallibility, despite their fallibility, somewhere in between? Great question. So my contention is that the characters I bring forth and discuss in detail in the book, uh, ranging from Moses to Samson and Esther, David, Jacob, and Abraham are portray the fullest view of how the Bible wants us to understand heroes. In other words, there are many characters in the Bible who act in ways that we would consider heroic. They step up to the plate and save the day, and they, are, they show their courage, um, and they help people in numerous ways. And you can think of characters such as Yael, who drives a tent peg into the enemy general's head and win, in, in, that, in that way wins the, wins the battle. The, the Israelites win the war because of her courage. That is certainly heroic. But the biblical view in its fullest is that people are, heroes are not to be just 
characters whom we put on a pedestal, right? And so the Bible, for its most complex and interesting and detailed characters, um, the Bible shows them in what what the Renaissance called chiaroscura, right? Uh, both light and dark. The way that character, the way that the artists would um, show uh, show people uh, uh, draw people with uh, a dark background so that they can kind of jump out, right? And so that's the way that the biblical, the Bible de- depicts its greatest heroes, that it, it shows that despite lives that are incredibly messy and characters that are complex and by far, uh, in many ways, uh, not admirable or it's, or not, it's not easy to pin them with uh, moral tags that they're simply great or good or kind or whatever, that they, they, they do many things that, that trouble us. And yet at the same time, these characters do rise up at certain moments to become heroes and to overcome fear, to show bravery and to, save the day in in various ways. If we look at the complexity of these biblical characters, I think to some degree, there's an added layer or level of complexity in as much as the rabbinic layer of interpretation perhaps changes or focuses in different ways on the characters. So in your book, how exactly did you handle this layers and levels of interpretation of these characters? Uh, Great question. So... I primarily focus on uh, the Bible's depiction in itself because that is so complex and so um, layered, as you put it. Um, And also people who – there are many people who read the Bible don't necessarily read (laughs) the rabbinic interpretations – and I didn't want them to be, I want this book to be for them as well. So whether it's Christians or, or Jews who, who aren't fluent in uh, biblical, uh, in rabbinic interpretation. At the same time, the Midrash especially can, uh, can really shed light on aspects of the text that are, um, that are, uh, not not spelled out that are often kind of left uh, to the reader's imagination. So I, I bring in midrashim uh, especially and and other interpretations as a way to kind of fill out uh, our understanding of of these characters. For example, when I talk about um, Jacob, back to Jacob. Uh, I call him a, a trickster and I compare him to other trickster characters and the comparisons are really uh, quite clear and um, multifaceted. So uh, whether it's Odysseus or Reynard the Fox, a medieval, the most popular medieval character uh, from literature and, and many others. And um, tricksters 
are characters that are surrounded by other tricksters. Uh, the most famous one uh, that people might know is um, the Native American trickster Coyote, who's constantly um, uh, struggling with his friend and nemesis Rabbit. <laughs> and they each out-trick each other, and it's a lot of fun to read those stories. And and they that, those stories influenced um, Roadrunner and Coyote, uh, famous uh, cartoons. Anyway, so... Um, so there's the scene where Jacob goes into the marriage tent, right? And it's dark and he can't see who he's with. He thinks it's Rachel. He comes out of the tent and behold, it's Leah, right? And he's like, what happened? <laughs> and the reader is also like, what happened? So um, the Midrash really fills out that story and, sa- and sh- says that Lavan and Leah work together to trick uh, Jacob, just as Jacob worked with his mother, Rebecca, uh, to trick uh, his, his father, Isaac. So the Midrash often really helps to, um, to bring out the, the, the character, the full, full character of these stories in a way that uh, the Bible, the biblical text is reticent. You mentioned before that you have a background in comparative literature, and we just started discussing a little bit about how you've brought some of the comparative literature to the book. But I wonder if you can give us a bit more detail about how you actually brought the texts as well as methodologies to this book. Right. So for each of the characters, uh, except for Moses. For Moses, I start with Moses, and I say Moses is a character who doesn't have clear parallels with other characters because the Bible, with him, my contention is really trying to de- to create the archetype for a biblical hero. But with subsequent heroes, um, I compare each of them to figures from other literature, and often that's a way of highlighting what's interesting and what's troubling sometimes about these characters. So uh, Samson doesn't seem like most other characters in in the Bible, for example, perhaps the most troubling character in the entire Tanakh. He just has less supernatural strength. He single-handedly kills thousands. He lifts the gates of a city and carries them across the country. And he has these, um, these bizarrely erotic uh, encounters with, with several women, like out of a, uh, an old French movie, <laughs> as I compare it. Um, but it's so far from the model of uh, human, human character that we see in the Torah, which uh, obviously kind of sets the model for what the way that the Bible understands character and, the, and relationships. So... Um, he really begs to be 
to be understood somehow in relationship to uh, other other characters. So he, he, there's a clear. Uh, it was, was certainly hasn't been. It wasn't my invention, but he has been compared. Was compared even in ancient times um, to um, uh, Hercules, Heracles, right? Who also was. Uh, a supernaturally strong character who killed a lion in one of his famous tests. He under, undertook various tests and also died because of his uh, love and betrayal by a woman, in this case, his wife. So there are many other aspects of that you can compare, but by use it, by comparing characters often to figures from other uh, other stories, other literatures, you act, we actually kind of gain a greater appreciation for how the Bible treats them. So, you know, a, a, character, a, super, uh, a, a characteristic such as supernatural strength, which was kind of a given in, in the Greek context, is problematized within the Bible, right? So, uh, I, I call him and Esther also a kind of uh, a foreign character kind of washed up in the Bible and the Bible, you know, um, shows them as kind of problem characters in many ways. You begin the book with a quote from John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress. Why, why did you begin with that quote? And can you tell us a little bit about what it means? Yes, absolutely. Let me let me read it, if I may. Okay. Uh, Pilgrim Progress, written in the 17th century, is a story of. It's really kind of an meant to be a kind of archetypal story of a spiritual quest by a, a Christian who leaves his city and and goes on a a pilgrimage, uh, leaves his family, goes on a pilgrimage. Uh, to find God. And here is, uh, here's an encounter between someone named oh, the great heart and another person called honest. It, it's, it's clearly a, an allegory. And as often in allegories, the characters have, uh, have very abstract names. Great heart, prithee, Mr. Honest, present us with a few particulars. Honest. So I will. He's talking about someone named Mr. Self-Will. In other words, uh, the egotist. Mr. Self-Will said, to have to do with other men's wives had been practiced by David, God's beloved, and therefore he could do it. He said to have more women than one was a thing that Solomon practiced, and therefore he could do it. He said that Sarah and the godly midwives of Egypt lied, and so did Rahab, and therefore he could do it. He said that Jacob got the inheritance of his father in a way of guile and dissimulation, and therefore he could do so too. So, uh, first of all, I think it's kind of a funny quote uh, that that describes someone the way that this person, Mr. Self-Will, um, who's just concerned about trying to get the most for himself, uh, reads the Bible. And he reads it as, as stories about how he's allowed, because all of these great characters do things that are ethically very dubious, he himself is allowed to do those too for his own benefit. And 
John Bunyan obviously portrays this as uh, as a false way, a bad way of reading the Bible. But the point is that the Bible kind of lends itself to that if if one is so inclined, because these characters are complicated and problematic and not perfect and not 100% ethical role models, the way that they're often portrayed or we would maybe like them to be. So I thought it, it provided a good kind of uh, touchstone for an amusing touchstone for the rest of the book. So you're not only an author, but you're also a pedagogue. You're an educator by trade. And I'm curious about how you've taken either the book itself or ideas from the book and used it within your educational program, framework, teaching itself. That's a, that's a great question. So um, I, I'll tell you about one session I did. I gave a session at a conference uh, discussing discussing these characters. And I talked about, I focused specifically on the idea, the chapter of Abraham as uh, whom I compare with uh, pilgrims and especially pilgrim, pilgrim progress and also um, Aeneas, Virgil's Aeneas, who's also uh, a pilgrim and I call them kind of Abraham's literary grandchildren. Um, and it's not, you know, we normally think of a pilgrim as someone who, you know, goes on this great pilgrimage. They leave their home to go to a, a, a site of a shrine to encounter God, right? Abraham's story maybe doesn't, doesn't um, seem like a pilgrimage story at first glance, but the more you look at it, the more you see the resemblances. First of all, he's told by God to, to leave his home, to go, to go on a kind of a lifelong pilgrimage to a place where he, he doesn't even know where he's going to go or what he's going to find, but he knows it's a place where God wants him to go and where he's going to have a relationship with God. And then um, at the pivotal moment of his story, when he's told to sacrifice Isaac, right, the, the beginnings of those stories are very clearly in parallel. Go forth from your native land, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then God gives a similar kind of command, you know, take Isaac, your son, your favorite son, da, 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 and go to this place. And this place where he doesn't necessarily know, he doesn't necessarily know where it is. It turns out to be Mount Moriah. And it's a place where we're told in the story, Hashem Yerah, God is seen, right? Um, so again, it's a kind of encounter and he, he goes on a kind of pilgrimage. So the two kind of most dramatic moments that are clearly in parallel, that kind of bookend most of his career, as it were, are pilgrimage stories. And then even in between, Abraham also is going from place to place. He's never allowed to really stand still. So, you know, I, I talked about this um, story as a kind of encouragement for people to think about their own lives as pilgrimages. You know, how do, you know, we don't necessarily think of ourselves, many of us, I mean, some people, I suppose, go on pilgrimages, <laughs> but most of us don't. Maybe as Jews, we do, because we we make trips to Israel, which are kind of pilgrimages in a way. So 
I invited people to kind of reflect on their own spiritual journeys as pilgrimages, whether it's, um, you know, simply pilgrimages, uh, not necessarily inward uh, as a matter of traveling in space, but traveling inwardly or, or a place that they've gone. Some people, I know for me, when I go um, on a vacation, I, I look for some kind of something spiritual, uh, usually in nature. Sometimes it could be in something cultural that uh, I've been longing to see my whole life. Um, and um, how, those, how those kind of spiritual journeys have shaped who they are um, and where their spiritual journeys might take them next. So that's just one example. And could this or should this book be brought to younger children in order to help them understand the biblical characters? Or perhaps is it something which only comes later once they understand the text at a more basic level? That's a great question. The truth is, I don't think it's ever too early to to discuss complicated features of the text because the text itself is complicated and people at every age and especially young people are so attuned to things that don't make sense, that things that aren't uh, the way that the teacher says that they are <laughs> or um, children are just, they're just very sensitive and very perceptive and in different ways they perceive you know, we all read these texts and pick up on different things but the students aren't going to just because you tell them oh you know everything moses does is perfect you know they're not going to believe you once they start reading it you know why is why does why does god you know get angry at him uh and sipora saves his life with this weird circumcision story, right? Why does God not, uh, chastise him for striking the rock and not allow him to go into the land of Israel, right? These are, there are many problematic aspects that are impossible to entirely hide by any teacher. And you can justify them however you want, but kids are going to pick up on it. And, you know, a, a good educational a good educator will elicit student responses and encourage their curiosity, their interest, their belief in their own ability to understand the text, to question the text, to come up with their own answers by themselves and in relationship to each other and the other kids in the class. We've discussed a couple of times, and you're just mentioning about God in the Bible. Of course, God has a big part in the Bible. He's there from the beginning, and he's there at the end as well. And you have a chapter in the book about God. So I found that very interesting and something which I wasn't expecting in a book about biblical heroes. How did you come to write a chapter about God, and is God a hero? <laughs> so I wasn't necessarily expecting to write a chapter about God <laughs> when I started out, but the more I, as I wrote the book, the more I started thinking about how does God fit in to this picture? Um, because 
you know, these characters are so complicated and often really so problematic that you wonder is, is the, what is the message um, that the, the biblical authors have about, about the hero? Is the message that really God is the only hero? That's really the, the question that I explore in the chapter. Are people, I, as I say, in the introduction, I talk about how there's this gap, this gap between God and, and humanity that can't be breached. And that's, that fundamentally distinguishes between the biblical perspective and the ancient Near Eastern perspective of its neighbors, of the, the Israelites' neighbors. And does that mean that because people can't be a hero in the way that other heroes are, that really God is the hero of the Bible? So I ask that question, and um, and I weigh it. I weigh the idea that that God is a hero, and certainly in some in some uh, parts of in some ways that God is portrayed in the Bible as a king. And the way, and in the ways that, especially the rabbinic tradition, portrays God, you could say yes, that God is is the hero. God uh, is uh, considered an ethical model for humanity. God is considered the one the the one who ultimately has power, and humans don't really have power, even when they think they do, right? Um, and um, and God is ultimately the one who saves the Jewish people. Uh, we don't we don't have the strength, you know. Right? When we, when we think we have the strength, we're deluding ourselves. But you know, at the same time, you can argue you can argue that that kind of that the, the depicting God as a hero really goes against the very any kind of definition of what a hero is, because a hero is a person who confronts their own limitations, their own fears. Um, they confront whatever forces are facing them, are uh, arrayed against them, to take action, right and take action in a way when they might, where they might die or they might be put down or they might suffer in some way, right? And by definition, God is not able to do that. So then I weigh those two and I come up uh, with a third option that God is, an, the, is necessary um, is as a partner for people to become a hero. People can't become heroes by themselves, but through their relationship with God. And that relationship isn't always comforting and it isn't always supportive by any means. Sometimes it's challenging. Sometimes God challenges people, tests people, puts stumbling blocks before them. Um, and still without God, they would not be able to rise to achieve the heroic acts that they do. Do you think that the view that you're presenting here in the book could be seen as an anti-Mamanidean view? 
because I think in my reading of Maimonides, perhaps uh, God is is very much not human-like, and there's a whole notion of negative theology and anthropomorphism being in some ways problematic. So how do you relate to, to Maimonides' conception, and how does it differ from yours, if at all? <laughs> That's a great question. And certainly our understanding of God as Jews is thoroughly um, thoroughly shaped by, Ma- by Maimonides. However, as any biblical scholar will tell you, um, Maimonid- the Maimonidean view, as br- beautiful and brilliant as it is, is not at all the biblical view uh, of the way the, the Bible portrays God. Um, and these terms, you know, Maimonides in the guide spends the first third of the book um, showing how all of the uh, the depictions of God's uh, body, God's parts, God's hand, God's anger, God's nose, etc., emotions are all really just metaphors or something else. But you know, they're not just metaphors. They weren't just metaphors to the biblical authors. Um, and so, uh, we have to unlearn, we have to unlearn a lot in order to try to, uh, see the Bible, uh, as, as it was, as it was, uh, written and as, uh, the, the authors and contemporaries of, uh, of, of the Bible in no time probably understood, uh, God. Uh, yeah. And some, some, you know, some uh, scholars, you know, try have a difficulty, or they they try to walk a fine line between the more Jewish, uh, classically Jewish traditional view, as as we've come to understand it, and and the, the views of biblical scholarship. <laughs> I've been in lectures where biblical scholars, who are also religious Jews, you know, try to try to balance, try to kind of walk a fine line and the audience often doesn't, won't have it. So uh, it's not easy, but. If we want to dig into the the biblical text itself, one of the things we'll find is that there's not too much in regards to the inner life of the characters. And that's something which has been discussed to be a difference between biblical text and other texts, such as Greek texts. So was it, was this something that you found to be challenging, something which you found to influence the way that, that you discuss these characters? How do you relate to this, this problem? That's a great question, yes. And Eric Auerbach famously talked about it in his chapter on the Bible and in Mimesis, that um, the biblical text is, in his words, fraught with background. That uh, So even though there is not a great deal of... Um, discussion of people's inner characters, there is something rippling underneath the surface of the text that invites the reader to project, imagine, understand that things are going on that we're not seeing, right? So I think that's, that, that is what one of the things that makes the Bible so pleasurable, so valuable and worth rereading, why we enjoy reading it and rereading it, because there are these things underneath the text 
that we know are happening and that we we grasp something else behind the scenes, as it were, every time we read it. So, um, and that made it, you know, so much fun uh, to write, makes it so much fun to write about the biblical text as well, because you, it's like a puzzle in some ways that you, that the reader has to um, put together. It doesn't totally add up or make sense unless you bring to it your own understanding about the world, about human character, and about how literary texts operate. Um, and so, I mean, I, I definitely, you know, that was definitely part of the fun of writing it and part of the way that I approached all of these characters is to look, to try to see where the text gives, gives us like a portal into into who is this character behind or or opens up sometimes it's not even a direct portal but it opens up questions because it doesn't tell you exactly how to think about these characters it opens up different possibilities of how you can understand these characters and we see that for example uh with esther right because esther in the very beginning uh, in the begin- opening chapters of the text, Esther is totally opaque to the reader. Esther is someone who is acted upon, but we never see a glimpse inside of her mind or heart. She is taken from uh, Mordechai. She's brought to the, uh, the king's beauty contest she is made up by the the eunuchs who who usher her, uh, and uh, and then she wins, and the king accepts her as a queen. And we hear nothing about who she is or what she thinks about all of this. And then later on, at the pivotal moment when Mordechai confronts her and says, "Look, you know this guy Haman wants." Uh, passed a decree to kill us all, and you're the only person who has any ability to do anything about it. Um, And if you don't, then we're going to need help from somewhere else, right? And traditionally somewhere else uh, is interpreted as God, but right there, they're in trouble. Uh, And then finally we see her. She steps out and we see her agency. But I, you know, what... How do we make sense of the Esther before that moment, right? What can we – and so I try to tease that out um, from different possibilities behind, lying behind the text of what she might be thinking uh, and grappling with during those moments. We said at the beginning that you cover six characters, seven if we include God, and – I'm curious, why did you choose these particular characters? Were there other ones which are perhaps, uh, you know, in in the long list, which didn't make the short list? That's a great question. So, um, as I mentioned, this term chiaroscuro, right, that light and dark, that these characters, I believe, are the most interesting biblical characters and the, therefore, the most and the heroes who are uh, who get the most 
real estate in the in the book, and uh, and because of that, I think the Bible is holding these characters up as the greatest heroes in some way. Even and because they're the most interesting and and often looked at as some some of them as the most as the greatest heroes. They um, are most worthy of attention, and the fact that the Bible sees focuses on their problematic aspects so uh, at such length really shows us the 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 way that the Bible understands people, right? Uh, that people are that there aren't people who are heroes who are above common humanity, right? The idea of a hero, even if you take away the God aspect, right? That person is half a God. The idea, if you look at a character like Odysseus, right? He is not a person whom an ordinary person can become, right? He is, he's on a different level of reality or Achilles, right? He's just super strong, super brave. Uh, he, all of his, the people he hangs out with are at the upper echelons of society, right? And that is a total opposite of the way that biblical heroes, biblical characters are portrayed. There are no people who are 2.0. We're all 1.0. We're all, it's a very democratic view of humanity in that respect. And because of that, even those people who are most worthy of study, of emulation, uh, whom the Bible puts forth, are also just as complex and problematic as we are, right? And because they are so such difficult and complicated figures, they give us hope. Because... People like you and me, um, maybe I should just say me, I don't know you, <laughs> but we can, we are able to step up and be heroes, even if we've done plenty of bad things in our lives, right? Even if we have emotions that weigh us down, that depress us, that even if we're gripped by fears, whatever it is that's holding us back inside, we also have that capacity to step up when the times call for it. And I really think that's the Bible's message. And we don't get that picture quite as fully and deeply with other characters because these are the characters that the Bible really portrays in all of their humanity. The title of the book is The Biblical Hero, Portraits in Nobility and Fallibility. I think that fallibility, we've discussed what that means and how that relates to being a hero and how it gives us the chance to strive to be a hero and, and to, in some ways, emulate the biblical characters, realizing that they have these flaws. What exactly is the notion that you have here of nobility and how does that connect to the, the biblical heroes? They are noble in that they are presented with situations where they are called to act and they do so. They find the resources in themselves to accomplish things that the society needs them to accomplish or that their families need them to accomplish or that they need to accomplish. Um, so, you know, David 
you know, for all of his problematic aspects, he, you know, nobody else in that society would go and fight Goliath, right? He's the one um, who steps up. That's a kind of just a very simple example. Um, or, or like we talked about Esther, right? Esther, she, you know, how could she go through this? How could she put herself through, the, agree to be put through this crazy year-long um, beauty contest? You know, there's something sickening about it. And then, and then what, what's her great prize? This, this, uh, this king who's a drunkard, who constantly having these, these parties, who, who got rid of or possibly beheaded his wife. You know, what's going on? How could she, how could she agree to that? Um, what was she thinking? And yet, when the moment came, she stepped up. Not only did she step up, she figured out brilliantly a way to um, get the king on her side, right? Which was not an easy thing at all. Um, so, you know, for, for all these characters, uh, you know, they're no, they, they have their great moments of nobility. Of course, Moshe, for all of his uh, drawbacks, you know, he's the one. He's, he, he doesn't even want to be the ruler, right? He doesn't want to be the leader of the Jewish people. <laughs> and he says, God picked someone else. I can't, I have a stutter. I don't, I'm not interested. I've already seen when I tried to help the people that they, that they despised me and they made me run away because they were going to report me to the king, to the Pharaoh, right? What do I need this for? And yet God says, no, you are the one, Moses. You've got to do it. And he does it, right? It's not, it's not a given. It's never a given. And they have to overcome their own reluctance, their own uh, – they – they wouldn't have necessarily known that they were capable of it until the moment came. Um, and then the moment comes and Moses is, is also, he's, he's brilliant in his showdown with Pharaoh. He really rises to the occasion. This book came out at the beginning of March, 2020. What a time, uh, you know, right before the pandemic hit and things really changed. Was there any way that you feel the book has been helpful during these pandemic times? Have you been able to use it in encouraging or inspiring ways during these times? What exactly has been the connection between this pandemic era and your book? I love that question. And thank you so much for recognizing <laughs> the book came out at exactly the same moment that COVID did. In fact, the, the pub day was March 1st. And then by March 8th, we were already on lockdown. My kids' schools had closed and I was working from home and the world was turned upside down. And so the book was very much placed on the back burner. Um, and yet this notion of heroism uh, that the Bible puts forth is something that we've seen uh, confirmed over and over again. We've seen that the heroes of, uh, of this time, of the COVID times, right, are those people 
First of all, as I say, heroes in the Bible can be from any walk of life, and they are, right? They're all kinds of people. It's, there's not, it's men and women. It's people who are in power and people totally out of power. It's uh, Rachav, you know, uh, who, and, you know, who may be a prostitute or an innkeeper's daughter, however you understand that word. Um, and it's shepherds and uh, David, who is the seventh son and the one who's considered last of all of them. Right? It, it, any, anybody can be a hero. And really, that message is, has come through loud and clear during COVID when we see right, the, the frontline workers. I don't, I don't know about in Chicago, but I imagine it was the same at the beginning of the pandemic. In New York, we were all standing uh, at our windows or on our balconies and banging cans and and cheering on uh, people who were saving lives during that time, as even as we were forced to huddle together indoors. People who risked their lives and, you know, through nothing more than going to work, going to a supermarket, to going, working in the hospital, things that they were had done previously without thinking about it were suddenly acts of tremendous heroism that were saving people in our society. And that's really the biblical view that if anybody in the right moment and given, given the right circumstances could be asked to become a hero, it doesn't mean they will be, but they're given, we're all in ways smaller and larger given opportunities in our lives to step up and sometimes we fail and sometimes hopefully we succeed. Thank you. I really appreciate that answer and, and all the time that you've given us. We've taken up a lot of your time. I'd love to ask you the traditional New Books Network question. What are you working on next? <laughs> Thank you. Well, I have a couple of uh, projects in, in the fire. One um, has to do with tefillah, Jewish prayer. And again, kind of drawing upon my interest in uh, comparative studies, uh, been looking at tefillah under the literary concept of the sublime. Um, how does um, how does the whole concept of tefillah, Jewish prayer, uh, resonate, or um, how does this how does the idea of the sublime of a sublime experience, sublime concepts, um, uh, sh- shape the way our understanding of the of what tefillah is? So that's that's one project I've been working on. Another one that has been kind of a passion of mine for many years now, uh, as a kind of amateur environmental advocate, is issues of climate change and how does climate change impact the way that we uh, our traditional notions of religious notions or the way we practice and understand Judaism Uh, how might those change in an era uh, threatened with uh, existential challenges uh, that that are facing us now and, and are likely to face us in greater abundance, unfortunately, in the near and far future. Thank you. I look forward to, to reading these and uh, engaging with you again once these come out. Thank you. 
I really appreciate all the time. We've been talking to Elliot Rabin, author of The Biblical Hero, Portraits of Nobility and Fallibility, published in 2020 by Jewish Publication Society. Happy reading, my friends.